It's also possible for a lawyer to be just plain stupid, isn't it? Basically, they're looking for smart people to solve problems. I'm aware we have a contract in place. Please, I'm an attorney. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, as always, this stuff in lieu of actual entertainment. Alrighty then. Hello and welcome back. This is Storytime and I am Gamer Dude. Glad to have you with us for some more stories this week. Today we're going to talk about the law again, a little bit. Okay, maybe a lot of it, but not so much the specifics of law, although some of the specifics. I'm going to use my law career and my journey to my law career as kind of a framework to explain how life is never what you expect it to be. It never comes out the way you thought it was going to. There's an old saying, man plans and God laughs. When we're young, we have plans. We think we're going to do X, Y, and Z. And then as it turns out, as we live our lives, X, Y, and Z are never on the radar. Now, that's not always the case. And sometimes we do follow our dreams and sometimes we get where we thought we were going to go. But by and large, over the course of your life, You're going to make some plans. You're going to have some goals. And then 20 or 30 or 40 years down the line, you're going to realize, oh, yeah, what the hell happened to that? Because you're going to find yourself doing something completely unrelated. You're going to find yourself living somewhere completely unrelated. You're going to find yourself with people completely unrelated to what you thought you wanted or what you thought you were going to do when you were 20 or 25 or 30 years old. So that's what we're talking about today. Now, I've talked about this a little in the past. I didn't go to law school directly out of college. When I was in college, and I've also mentioned this in the past, I had no idea what I was going to do. I had no idea. I went in with certain ideas. I went in as a journalism major. That lasted all of a year. And as I've explained, I changed my major five times because I couldn't decide. I couldn't decide what I wanted to do. I didn't know. And really, that's the first point that I want to make for you. When you're 18, 19, 20 years old, when you're in college, they want you to pick a major. They want you to pick a career. And let me tell you, there's no way you really know what you want to do at that age. At least most people. I know some people went into school. My college roommate went into school wanting to be an accountant. And he became an accountant. And he became a very good accountant. And he lived his whole life and made his whole career being a good accountant. That's what he did. That's what he wanted to do. That was his goal. He did it. And more power to him. Good for him. And some people are able to do that. And some people are not. I was one of those who was not. I changed majors five times. I wound up coming out with a liberal arts degree, which qualifies me for doing absolutely nothing. But I was really well educated while I was doing nothing. I mean, seriously, what the hell do you do with a liberal arts degree? That's kind of like the accumulation awards you get by hanging around baseball for so many years. You play baseball for 25 years, you get a lot of hits because you've been playing for 25 years. I was in college for four years, took a whole bunch of credits every single year. Basically, I had enough hours to graduate. I satisfied all the requirements. I had enough hours. They said, all right, get the hell out. Here's a degree. Go away. That's the way it worked for me. And I've told stories about what I did after I got out of college. I was driving limos. I was working retail. And I was doing this while I was trying to break into radio. Back then, my goal was to break into radio. I wanted to be the nicer Howard Stern. You know, have fun on the radio, do some interviews. Be goofy, but don't be quite the shock jock that he was back in the 80s and the 90s. I thought I could do that. And I've explained why I fell off that track. It's the same reason I didn't go to Hollywood to become an actor. The odds are against you becoming either the next Howard Stern or the next Harrison Ford. You can. It's possible. You can be that guy. But I realized, uh, I didn't really want that. 
I wanted a more buttoned-down life, I guess. I wanted roots somewhere. I didn't want to be a DJ going from town to town. So I wound up working at Newsweek magazine, and I didn't want to stay in that corporate world after two years of doing it. And that's how I wound up in law school. I mean, I just didn't wind up there. I went through the process. I took the LSATs, I did the application process, and I had to get accepted, and I was accepted, and so I went. But that's kind of part one of the story. I was doing several different things for several years after I graduated college, and law school wasn't even in the picture. It wasn't a thought in my mind for at least four years. So I went through my 20s doing a variety of different things, trying things on, finding that they didn't fit, trying something else on, finding that didn't fit. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. I wasn't married. I didn't have kids to raise. I could experiment. I could try things on. And that's what I did. Did I make mistakes? (laughs) Of course. I was in my 20s. I didn't know anything. I made some bad choices. I picked some odd directions. I did some weird things, both professionally and personally. But that's what your 20s are for. Anybody who thinks that you should have your life locked in and planned out when you're 25, they forget what it's like to be 25. And this is years ago. This is before the current financial dilemma that so many 20-year-olds find themselves in. Hell, so many 30-year-olds and 40-year-olds find themselves in these financial dilemmas, in these financial crises. We're in the days of end-stage capitalism. People are struggling and people are suffering. You can't expect to have your life all figured out when you're 25 or 35 or 45. The way the world is going, you have to be able to change on the fly. You have to be able to shift gears quickly and be ready to go. So it's unrealistic to think that you have to have your whole life planned out and set in stone by the time you're 25 years old or 30 or 35 or 40. Hell, I've been making life changes for the past 20 years. I'm still making major decisions. And I guess that's the other thing to keep in mind. You're always going to be making changes. You don't have to be set in stone at any time in your life. If you're unhappy, if you're uncomfortable, if things aren't working, or sometimes if somebody fires you, or your company closes, or a pandemic happens, you make changes. Because you have to. So anyway, getting back to law school. I went into law school in my late 20s. That's later than some people, earlier than others. There was a guy in my law school class who was in his 50s. He had been a minister, decided to retire from the ministry, and he went to law school. And he graduated in our class at the age of 54. There's a guy who's making some changes, speaking of life changes. He's in his 50s and says, you know, let's go be a lawyer. And he did. So I graduated law school and I got a job at a small firm. My goal, and I've talked about this, my goal was to become a prosecutor. I wanted to be a prosecutor. I wanted to wear the white hat. That was what it was in my mind. I was the white hat good guy. I was going to be working for truth, justice in the American way as a prosecutor, putting away the criminals, enforcing the rule of law, doing all the stuff that a good prosecutor is supposed to do. Well, at least in the books. Turns out, which is something that I learned after practicing law, too many prosecutors are in it for the wrong reasons. They don't understand what a prosecutor's job actually is. It's not to wield power and to slam people over the head with your ability to put them in jail. Prosecutor's job, technically and ethically, is to ensure that justice is done. I may actually do a whole episode about prosecutors somewhere down the road, because too many prosecutors don't realize that there is an ethical obligation to ensure that justice is done. It's not to get convictions. It's not to manhandle or bully people. It's to make sure justice is done. And that's what I liked about it. 
But that was the idealistic version of being a prosecutor, not the realistic version of working in a prosecutor's office. Don't get me wrong, some prosecutors actually do get it, but far too many of them don't. But I didn't discover that until I actually worked as a prosecutor. That came after my first job. My first job was at a small firm in criminal defense. And I've talked about doing criminal defense. It's hard. It's hard work. It's hard to wrap your mind around and justify defending people you know are guilty. You do it because you have to do it. You do it because, as part of the system, you have an important role to make sure the system works. But boy, it's a hard job doing criminal defense. I did it, and I was good at it, but I didn't like it a lot. The other thing we did at that firm was family law. Family law is divorces, child custody, adoptions. If a family gets in trouble with the Department of Children's Services or whatever the equivalent is in your state, they sometimes need a lawyer. We did that stuff too. Anything having to do with family law, we did. And as hard as criminal law is, that family law stuff is even harder. At least in criminal law, you knew who the bad guy was. Or should I say, you knew who the alleged bad guy was. But when it's family law, you have two competing sides. And as it turns out, people don't handle divorce or separations or child care very seriously or in a very adult manner. They're very petty. They're very childish. They're very mean to each other. And for no other reason except that they can be. As I've mentioned before, I have ethical obligations. I can't reveal client confidences, but I can tell you about a hypothetical case where the two people were getting a divorce and hypothetically, the husband went to the marital home and beheaded the wife's antique doll collection, hypothetically. And he did it for no other reason than he could and that it meant something to her, hypothetically. But that's the kind of petty crap that you deal with in family law. You get that kind of stuff. You get the visitation issues with children. It's my weekend to have them. I'm supposed to have the kids for Thanksgiving. She went off to Cancun with the kids. What are you going to do about it on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving? And the answer to that is, there's nothing I can do about it. Even if I could get a judge to hear your complaint, the judge is not going to turn a plane around on its way to Cancun and get your kids back here for Thanksgiving. There's nothing I can do about it, hypothetically, if that was something that actually happened. But that's the kind of stuff that you run into in family law. These visitation issues, these property issues, using the kids as pawns. It's not pleasant. It's not fun. That's one of the reasons that I hated family law even more than criminal law. I would rather go to the jail at 9 o'clock at night and visit with my client in the smelly holding cell that they have where clients and attorneys would meet, and which I've done. I would rather do that than sit in an office and let some husband or let some wife vent about how evil their partner is, the one that they spent 22 years with and had three kids with and now would like to light on fire. The second one is not a conversation I like to have. Sitting in the holding cell is actually a far more reasonable experience. But that's what I mean about winding up doing things that you don't expect that you're going to do. When I was in law school, I thought that, boom, right into the prosecutor's office, I'm golden. But that's not the job that I got. The job that I got was at a criminal defense firm where we also handled family law. It was a good job. It was a paying job. It wasn't ideal for what I had in mind for myself. But it was a stepping stone to get to where I wanted to go or where I thought I wanted to go. I did that for a couple of years and I wound up eventually getting to a prosecutor's office. Now, this was not the prosecutor's office that I thought I was going to. My personal life circumstances changed. We'll get into that at another time. But let's summarize by saying I left Ohio, where I was doing criminal defense and family law, 
moved to New Jersey, where I got a job at a prosecutor's office, and did that for a couple of years. But what I soon discovered doing prosecutor's work is that it's a government position and you were paid a government salary. I was making decent money in private practice. When you go work for the government, you don't make as much money. You know, law firms, private practice, if you're doing civil law, if you're doing family law, if you're doing criminal law, you charge a fee based on how much work is involved. Or if it's a civil case, you can get a contingency fee. You've heard of contingency fees. If you settle a case against a manufacturer for a million dollars, and I'm just using round numbers here, you settle the case for a million dollars, the attorney gets a third of that. It can vary depending on the state, but generally it's a third. So if you've got a good case and you get a good settlement, you can make some really good money as an attorney. That's why a lot of attorneys get into the law. They want that really good money. But it's almost like Hollywood. Not every attorney gets that really good money. Not every attorney can settle a big case like that. Not every attorney has the client base to get lots and lots of criminal referrals or family law referrals or civil litigation referrals. That's why a lot of attorneys are what they call ambulance chasers. They go around looking for accident victims. That's why you see so many commercials on TV. Have you been hurt? We can get you money. Attorneys want that big payday, but they don't always get it. Partly because they're just not always out there. Not every injury is a catastrophic injury worth millions of dollars. Sometimes an accident is just an accident. But that doesn't stop some attorneys. But anyway, getting back to the point. I worked as a prosecutor for a couple of years. And I loved it. I loved it. I loved the bail hearings. I loved going to trial. I loved wearing the white hat. I had the freedom to do prosecution the way that I thought it should be done, which is to ensure that justice is done. I worked for one of those guys who was a real prosecutor, who understood the prosecutor's role. He got it. I loved working for that guy. He was the county prosecutor, and he had a whole bunch of assistant prosecutors, of which I was one. And we had a great team, and we did good work, and it was fun. It was what I wanted to do as a lawyer. But the thing about prosecutors in the state of New Jersey is they're appointed by the governor. They're appointed for a five-year term. And when their five years is up, they can either be reappointed or they're not. And if the governor changes, then the new governor gets to come in and put in all of their political cronies into these county prosecutor jobs. That's just the way the system works. It's not the way it's supposed to work, but politics being what they are, that's the way it works. So my guy, who was a good guy, who hired me and who did prosecution the way it should be done, when his term was up, it just so happens that there was a new governor of the opposite political party. And naturally, rather than keep people in their jobs who know what they're doing, they take those people out and put in people to whom they owe political favors. In other words, you helped get me elected, so you get to be the county prosecutor in X county. And that's the way it works. That's the way the system works. It's politics. It has nothing to do with the law or justice or doing the right thing. It's politics. And what happens when there's a new county prosecutor, the new county prosecutor basically does a house cleaning. Every county prosecutor will have loyalists. You know, if the county prosecutor is Joe and we're all loyal to Joe, the new prosecutor will come in and get rid of all those loyalists. We don't need your kind here. We need people loyal to me. Again, politics. It has nothing to do with whether or not we're doing our job correctly. It has no idea how much good we're doing in our community. We're on the wrong political spectrum, so we're out the door. And, circling back to what I started this episode with, this is another thing over which you have no control in your life. I was a county prosecutor. Actually, technically the term is assistant prosecutor. I was working in a great job, not for a lot of pay, but it was what I wanted to do. But politics entered into the picture, and I had to face a tough decision. I could wait around and be house cleaned out by the new prosecutor, or I could find another job. 
And I chose the latter because I could see everybody around me getting let go. They would have their meetings with the staff of the new prosecutor. My meeting hadn't come up yet, but I could see they were working their way down the list. They were taking the top people first because those are the senior positions. Those are the people making the most money. So let's get rid of those guys first. That way we can show, hey, I'm the new prosecutor. I'm saving money to the county. I don't need seven cronies. I only need three. And so you can save the salaries of four high-level heads of department prosecutors and maybe hire four lower-level ones and wind up saving money. Oh, yeah, there's all kind of politics involved in this. And again, it has nothing to do with whether you're a good lawyer or a good prosecutor or not. It's how does it look to your cronies and to the political beneficiaries all around you. I started looking for another job, and I found one. I found a solo practitioner. That's a guy who's by himself, has his own office. He's the only guy there. No partners, no associates, just this guy. He had been a member of a big firm at one point and decided to spin out on his own. I worked for him for many years and I eventually learned, although he never told me exactly why, I surmised that he left because he didn't like the people that he was working with. He had become a partner in the firm and when you are a partner in the firm, you have more of a say and you have more of an idea of the inner workings of the firm. And based on the stories he was telling me, I think he got tired of working with them and he wound up going out on his own. And he was out on his own, and he was looking for an associate to help him handle all of the litigation that he was doing. He was doing some civil litigation, and he was doing some appellate work. Appellate work is when you lose a case at trial, you get to take an appeal to the appeals court. And you get to tell the appeals court, this is why the trial court screwed up. Or, this is the law that the trial court messed up. Or, this is why the evidence that they relied on shouldn't have been admitted. Or any number of other errors you can come up with, any other mistakes, any other reasons you can come up with that the jury verdict or the judge verdict or the result below shouldn't stand up. You've heard of people taking appeals before? That's what an appeal is. You point out all of the errors that you allege happened at the trial level and you tell the appeals court, that's why I should have won. Now, truth be told, the rate of success on appeals is about 10%. They generally don't reverse things unless there's a really compelling reason to do so. And in order to get the appellate division to think that your reasons are compelling, you've got to really know your stuff. Well, this guy that I got a job with really knew his stuff. He had a phenomenal success rate handling appeals. He was really, really good at it. He knew the law in the field that he was practicing. He represented one of the biggest companies in the state that handled cases involving this area of the law. And he was really, really good at it. Now, it's an area of the law that I never studied in law school. It's an area of the law that I only caught a whisper of when I was practicing back in Ohio. It's an area of the law that I knew absolutely nothing about. You may have heard of it. You may not have heard of it. It's an area of the law called workers' compensation. And this guy was recognized in the state as one of the premier lawyers in the field of workers' compensation. I'm not going to give you a whole lesson on workers' comp. I'm just going to tell you basically what it is. If you're hurt in the course of your employment, if you're doing a job, let's say you're digging ditches, that's your job, and you cut your foot while you're digging ditches, you slam your shovel onto it accidentally, you cut your foot. That's a workers' compensation injury because it's an injury that happened in the course of your employment digging ditches. Now, why is that not a negligence suit? Well, technically it could be. But what happened is businesses and labor discovered in the late 1800s, early 1900s, that all these potential lawsuits from workers injured in the course of their employment would A, tie up the courts, and B, potentially bankrupt the employers if the employers were found liable for these negligent injuries. 
So across the nation, each state adopted its own version of the workers' compensation law, and there's lots of versions. There's 50 versions, basically. But what that does is protect employers from a negligence suit in civil court where you could get a million-dollar judgment. But it also protects the workers because, theoretically, resolving suits in workers' compensation should go quickly. Oh, it happened during the course of work? Okay, here's a check for the injury that you had. It's supposed to be that quick. It's supposed to be, oh, you got injured? Here's a check. And in some cases, it is. In other cases, not so much. And I will go into workers' compensation in greater detail in another episode, because it is actually a fascinating area of the law. It actually is, but I never expected it to be. I never knew anything about it. But because there are so many nuances to it, I'm not going to go into it today. I'm just kind of giving you an overview to fit into what I wound up doing for most of my legal career. Because the theme today is, life takes you places you never expected that you would go. And that you never foresaw going to. And yet here you are. And that's what workers' compensation was to me. I practiced law, criminal defense, family law. I was a prosecutor for four or five years. I was liking it. It was okay. But I hadn't landed the perfect job. I hadn't landed the dream job. I hadn't landed at any big firm, nor did I want to. I saw the kind of hours those guys put in. I said, no, no, I'm good. I'll work for the small office or I'll work for the state. But then I took this interview with the sole practitioner who did workers' compensation law and appeals, and he offered me a job. He liked my writing style. He liked my attitude. The only thing he didn't like was my inappropriate jewelry. If you listened to my episode a few weeks ago when I first talked about piercing my ear, this is the interview that I went on where I wasn't wearing my earring in my pierced ear, but I showed up for the first day of work with my earring in. Very conservative fella. He's the guy who took me to lunch, warned me against wearing inappropriate jewelry in the future, but kept me on. And what he did over the first year of my employment there, he kind of kept me in a box because he knew that I didn't know anything about workers' comp, but he had confidence that I would learn it. He had confidence that I would be able to write briefs about it. He had confidence that I'd be able to handle workers' compensation cases. And he was right. I have to say, his confidence was well-placed because I did learn this stuff. I learned it really well. And lo and behold, I wound up practicing in the field of workers' compensation for over 20 years. I handled more appeals from the Division of Workers' Compensation than most people have had cases. I wrote over 100 briefs in the area of workers' compensation. I appeared in the appellate division over 75 times for oral argument. I was in front of the Supreme Court of the state of New Jersey on three separate occasions on workers' compensation appeals. There was one time I was in the appellate division on a workers' compensation appeal. There was a case before mine, and I was so well-known in the appellate division that the judge on the bench saw me in the gallery and said to the people in front of him, well, I wish Mr. Gamer Dude were here to argue this case because he'd be able to tell us what's going on. That's how well I knew the law. And that's how many times I appeared in the appellate division. I was there so much, the judges actually recognized me. That doesn't happen to everybody. Yeah, I got pretty good at it. The point of all that is this. You never know where life is going to take you. If I'd have gone into law school planning to become one of the foremost attorneys in workers' compensation, I doubt it would ever have happened. Is it fair to say I fell into it? Uh, you could say that, I guess. But you know what? I look at it as serendipity. I was in the right place, at the right time, with the right guy. I had the right skill set. He needed someone of my talents. I needed someone of his knowledge and ability. And together we formed a powerhouse duo in an obscure area of the law that I had never heard of until I took the job with him. And that's why I really subscribe to the old saying, man makes plans and God laughs.
So, yeah, I never expected to be a workers' compensation attorney, but I was, and I was a damn good one. I learned a lot. I taught a lot. I spread my knowledge around as much as I could. I mean, once I became knowledgeable. And I had a good time doing it. But as I said, I never would have guessed that this is the field of law that I would have mastered. And to me, it's one of the most underappreciated and misunderstood fields of law there is, and yet one of the most important. Because there are hundreds of thousands of dollars in benefits that are paid out every single day in the workers' compensation system. And one of the things that I did was try to keep an eye on that stuff. But we can talk more about that somewhere down the road. For now, that's going to do it for this week's episode. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being a part of things. As always, I appreciate your support, and I appreciate you taking the time to listen. Until next time, you guys take care of yourselves, and I'll see you when I see you.